I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And welcome to another episode of the Tap on the Wrist podcast. Welcome. It's funny, we literally were just talking about what we were going to talk about in our intro, and for some reason when you started, I thought you were going to start telling a story, <laughs> and I like wasn't prepared to say that I'm Vanessa. <laughs> Ooh, 86 <I'm> times <laughs> later. We're still trying to figure this thing out. You would think it would almost be second nature, but like... Still, every week, we're like, what do we talk about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, how's but, your week? You know, it's been a week. It's, uh... I do know. It's been stressful. I punched myself in the lip yesterday by accident. <laughs> it's... I iced it a lot, so it's not really swollen anymore, but I have, like, a cut under, oh. which is bothering me. Um, <laughs> I was... <laughs> I was eating and like, I don't know, somehow my arm slipped and with my fork I punched, I don't even know how to explain it. I genuinely don't even know how to explain it. (laughs) So she's trying to give herself a fat lip so she can take some days off. (laughs) But that's how my week went. How was yours? Um, my week was long, even though there was like one day this week that was like a a teacher work day, so there were no kids in the building. Oh yeah, it was election day yeah but this week just felt very long yeah but it's um i'm glad it's over (laughs) your nails are very slytherin yeah they're kind of chromatic i like them thanks sorry that was just me noticing laura's (laughs) um but yeah it has been a very long week hopefully next week is better yes and vanessa and i are getting ready to head off on a little weekend trip and to prepare for this i've Made us some fun alcohol. Yeah. Tell us about it. So I infused some whiskey. Woo! With mango and hibiscus. So how did you do this? So it's actually like one of those kits that you buy. Okay. And you, it comes with the ingredients. So it's like dehydrated mango and dried hibiscus. Mm -hmm. Uh, and Here then, I was thinking you want to pick some hibiscus somewhere. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> where the fuck you would have done that. <laughs> you know me and the wild hibiscus <laughs> of New York. <laughs> but, uh, and so, <laughs> then you pick any alcohol you want. And so, originally I was going to do it in a rum and do a mango hibiscus rum. Okay. But then I was thinking, it's fall, the weather is crisp, and this time of year I really love a hot toddy, Mm. and I thought a mango hibiscus infused hot toddy might be really interesting. And delicious. Yes. And toasty. So that's why I chose whiskey as the spirit. And so it's been infused, I have not tasted it, but it's been infusing all week, and it said it only needed three to four days. Oh, and it's so, been all week, so we got a little been extra. Like over a week. Well, yeah, I did it last weekend, so it's gonna be quite infused and hopefully delicious. I can't wait. We'll have to report back and let you guys know how it is. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll have to remember to take a picture if we make a hot toddy with it. We will. So that we can post it on our social media. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which you can find. Um, so, yeah, check out pictures of hopefully our hot toddies. As well as anything we're going to talk about today, uh, which our theme of the week is um, beer and, or like bar, 
distillery origin stories is yes. what we spun for this week. So we're getting ready to share two very different stories with you. And we're going to have pictures online. So our social media, we are on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. Yes. And you can also email us again with any story ideas because they'll, they'll fit into something we spin one day. Yeah. <laughs> you can email us at tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. And as Laura said, we're going to be talking about bar and distillery origin stories this week. Um, which I guess is kind of interesting since we were talking about bars for two weeks in a row. We just, we, a lot of bar history recently. I know, but I mean, that's how you learn about bars. (laughs) (laughs) I really wanted to say something poignant there, but I like couldn't think of it. I feel like knowing about like bar history or distillery history sometimes exposes you to like try new things. Yeah. Like, I know that I definitely, when I walk into a liquor store now, I'm not always picking up the same bottle of whiskey. Like, I'm picking it up, I'm reading labels, because for me, A, as, like, for the podcast, I'm always kind of looking and researching, but I also think there's so many unique stories out there that, like, yes, I'm still going to drink Jameson, I'm still going to drink, you know, some of the bigger brands, but, like... It's nice to know those tiny distilleries and how they started. It is. And I totally forgot what story I told because we're obviously recording this intro after. I just had to look back. I was like, what What did I talk about? (laughs) I talked about a small distillery. Yes, Yes, and I talked about a bar. So you get both. A bar and a distillery. It's just how good we are. (laughs) So we hope you enjoy this week. Again, make sure you're checking us out on social media, sharing us with a friend, um, rate, review, and subscribe. I feel like we haven't said that in a while. I know. Do all the things. Help us out. Yes. Because that's why you're here listening to us. So To help us, that's why. <laughs> well, <laughs> Not like, for your own enjoyment. <laughs> if you are enjoying it, you should tell other people is what I bet. <laughs> yes. Not- <laughs> but most importantly, what you should do, sit back and listen to us tell you some stories. Oh. I just said finger guns. <laughs> Okay, so the distillery I'm going to tell you about today is not well-known, nor is it overly historic, but it has a unique origin story, and I want wanted to share it. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm okay. excited. So the distillery first stood out to me. I actually saw a brief YouTube clip of it while I was researching something else. For a separate episode, and I had kind of written it down and came back to it when we spun this week. Um, and it's because it has a unique name, and it's called Bully Boy Distillers. That sounds a little familiar, actually. I don't know why. I don't know. But I'm not going to tell you the origin of the name yet. Yeah. Uh, at first, I am going to tell you more about who founded it. Um, It's founded by two brothers who kind of mistakenly fell into being distillers. Okay. Mistakenly. Yeah. And so their story kind of fascinates me. So it's two brothers, Dave and William Willis. And Dave is the current head distiller and co-founder of Bully Boy Distillery. And he and his brother grew up on a working farm. 
right outside of Boston. And this working farm had lots of apple trees on the farm. That was one of the things that they produced. Mm. So as a young kid, they would often take the, the apples and press them into cider and, you know, sold it on their farm okay. or sold it to local businesses and stuff. Right. And it's, you know, not long or as the boys grew up, their appreciation for crisp apple cider led to an appreciation for fermented hard <laughs> apple cider. I do um, love cider, so I don't blame them. Yeah, and that kind of grew, like, their fascination with kind of the idea of really more fermentation than mm-hmm. distillation. Uh, and they they then made some experiments with hard cider, um, kind of forming, like, an apple brandy that they would give to friends and family but nothing official, nothing legitimate. It was like a side hobby um, that they kind of did. They had a very small one-gallon still. And, you know, they got pretty good at making apple brandy that people would request it. Um, and it became kind of a fascination of Dave, one of the brothers. He got so into it at one point, he did take a job as kind of like an apprentice with some other distillers in states like Missouri um, and Illinois and just kind of learned the art of distillation and fermentation in hopes of, like, I don't think he ever really thought they were going to open their own, but like to just better their hobby, right? Kind of like us in podcasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go, this is never going to be our full-time job, Uh but we might, you know, learn things here and there to be better at our craft. Uh Uh, So this is what Dave does. Will, on the other hand, the other brother, while it was a side hobby with his brother, he went to business school and he became an entrepreneur and lived a very different life off the farm not really in that business at all as he grew up. Mm -hmm. He currently serves as the head of sales and the co-founder of Bully Boy Distillers, so he comes back. Well, that business Mm -hmm. background probably came in useful to become the head of sales. Yes. Uh, So while Dave is the head distiller, as I mentioned, Will manages all the finances and, like, the strategic vision, and that's how they work together because... Let's be honest. Well, you're an only child. You don't understand. No one really wants to work with their sibling. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, like, um, perfect because I think we've actually talked about this. Like, you're like, I have so many business ideas, but I don't know business stuff, so I need someone to, yeah. like, do that part of it yeah. for me. So they're, like, the perfect pair. Yeah. And they... <laughs> One thing that I did note when I was reading their bios on the, the Bully Boy website is that... You know, he grew up with this passion for kind of, like, craft distilling of the cider. Um, and, but he really has helped grow Bully Boy more from behind a desk Mm -hmm. than at a still. But he's always happy to lend his palate for an occasional quality (laughs) control tasting. And I'm like, of Of course. course. Yeah. Okay, so... Let's go back to that working farm that I mentioned, because this is where the origin of the whole story and distillery begins. Okay. So that family farm is called Charlescott, 
and it is a fourth generation working farm. Uh, Dave and Will grew up working on the farm, doing a little bit of everything from tending to the cows to picking at the orchards, um, you know, plowing fields. And one day they were back visiting the farm as adults, as you do, mm-hmm. and they're kind of poking around in the family farmhouse when they're down in the basement and they come across a piece of paneling that just looks a little bit off. Okay. And so with a little bit more investigation, they realize that this paneling is a secret door. Love that. I know. And when they open the wooden door uh-huh. behind it. Dead body? Bank vault door. <laughs> No dead bodies. Um, <laughs> that would be for the serial killer podcast. Started yet. Uh, no, so they they move this wood paneling and are very shocked to see a full blown bank vault locked and sealed. And they're like, "What the shit? Like, Grandpa? Yeah, what, what's behind this?" Um, Oh my god, fascinating. I w- that's my dream. That's yeah, my dream. Yeah. Is to fi- just find a random thing that I get to open. I know. So they'd never seen this vault door before, had no idea it existed, and they didn't really know who in the family knew about it mm-hmm. or who had put it there or who was responsible. And so they had to do some private investigating within their own family. Yeah. It turns out that David and Will's grandfather was the responsible family member who had installed the vault in the family basement. However, sadly, he had already passed away and took his secrets with him, and they couldn't get inside the vault. No one knew how to open it. Oh my god, that would drive me crazy. Yeah. So, they had to call a locksmith. Yeah. And the locksmith comes... And while all this is happening, because it's not a quick process, it's not an overnight thing, um, they discover that Grandpa had snatched this three-inch thick steel door from a defunct bank during the Great Depression and installed it in the home to hide his most secret possessions. Because after living through the Depression, I guess they, you know had this mindset that, like, everything was precious and you had to, like, really hide your stuff. So that's why the vault was installed. And when the locksmith eventually gets out and all of the... I'm sure there's paperwork and stuff involved. But they break into the vault. Guess what's behind this vault door? Money. No. Dead bodies. Still no dead bodies. (laughs) There are no dead bodies in my story. (laughs) Alcohol. Yes! Oh, yay! Okay, Grandpa was a boozy man. He loved his alcohol. And so what they discover is this, like, one-of-a-kind collection of pre-prohibition and post-prohibition era spirits. So basically money, because that was yeah, yeah, yeah. worth the time. <laughs> so I'm going to read what they described, how they described their first journey into the bank vault. Okay. When we opened the steel door, we discovered everything from cow whiskey to very old vodka to Medford rum. 
A closer examination of those labels, particularly the dates, which stretch back to the 1920s and 1930s, reveals why the names are so unusual and the contents so questionable. This was bootleg liquor. In an era when prohibition is endlessly glamorized and so many bars try to recreate the experience of drinking in a speakeasy, these bottles were the real thing. A tangible, authentic connection to a period of American history that mystifies and fascinates us to this day. And there, among the dust and bottles, was an old framed picture of a horseshoe with a cryptic eulogy. We knew when we saw it, we'd found the name of our distillery. The vault served as an inspiration for everything to come. The connection between the farm, our family, and Bully Boy Distillers. So cool. I know. And so they were blown away. Yeah, as I would be. This collection they found. And we... There are tons of pictures of it, and uh-huh. uh, there are, are videos. I watched a couple of videos, too, of them taking tours through the vault. Uh-huh. Um, but we'll definitely post that on our social media, so check us out. Instagram and Twitter, at Attack on the Wrist. Nice plug. Uh, thanks. Uh, but it's very cool when you see these bottles. And yeah. one thing I loved about the bottles, which I don't know if there's a picture of it, but it was definitely in the YouTube video I watched, um, on some of the bottles that were clearly had been opened at some point, there was a tag with names. So when Grandpa opened a bottle and shared it, he wrote down everyone's name as like a log of like who had been drinking. He did not mess around with liquor. Huh? He did not. And so I just thought that was like it's just such a cool piece of history to have. Yeah. For like, and for Grandpa to have kept that secret. I know. So cool. It's kind of sad they didn't get to, like, ask him about it at all. Right. Um, and I, so just, I'm just so jealous. Like, I know. What a cool family relic to come across. That will never happen to me because I don't have, like, an old family home. Right. I mean, I guess I could technically move into a home where I find somebody else's stuff, but not from, like, my own family. Right. And so as I quoted the brothers above, one of the shelves inside the vault was that framed photo of a horseshoe with a cryptic eulogy. And again, the brothers didn't understand why there was a framed horseshoe in the middle of the vault, why there was a eulogy written with it. Like, Uh obviously it had been of some significance to Grandpa to be in this vault. So did some researching again. It's a quite a laborious process. But they find out that the horseshoe had belonged to their grandfather's favorite working farm horse, who was named Bully Boy. Mm. Yes. And Bully Boy had worked in the on the farm in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And after discussions and, like, putting different pieces of puzzles that family members knew together, um, they just found out that Bully Boy was named because their great-grandfather... So their grandfather's father uh-huh. was very close friends with Teddy Roosevelt. And when Teddy would come over and hang out, I guess. As you do. Um, 
one of his most famous expressions is bully. Uh-huh. And, like, the grandfather then named his horse Bully Boy. Oh. And David Will have now named their distillery after the horse. So it, it all ties back to good old Teddy Roosevelt. Now, bully meaning great or extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and they just felt that, like, the tie to their family plus their plan was to be a great and extraordinary distillery, it all just felt like the pieces had fallen together. Yeah. And a distillery was created. Now, all of this happens not that long ago. 2010. Okay. Is when the distillery starts. So... You know, I said at the top, this isn't an overly historic story, although there are elements of history. Now, in the last 10 years, Bully Boy Distillers has expanded quite a bit in the North uh, East, New okay. England region. Maybe so, I've, like, seen it or something. I, their bottles definitely look familiar Because I'm telling you, that name sounds familiar. I don't know why, but it does. Yeah. We're going to get into some of the things they distill in a while, because it's... Remarkable. Okay. But, uh, you know, when they started, they were very small, mm-hmm. right? At-home craft distillers making very small batches, everything on their own. Um, they now have two full, like, big working stills. Um, there's one that's 150 gallons that they use for only their gins. Okay. And then a 750-gallon still that they use for everything else that they brew Mm -hmm. and it's they're quoted as saying well the volume of product that we distill has changed since the days of our five gallon stovetop still our philosophy has not we still obsess over every drop that comes off the still meticulously smelling it tasting it and making sure nothing goes into the bottle that doesn't live up to our standards So, let's talk about what Bully Boy Distillers currently makes. Okay. Because it is a wide variety of things. And some of it is super fascinating. So, they make... First off, we're going to start American whiskey. Okay. Pretty traditional, straight up, got that. Then they make a vodka. Okay. Again, pretty standard vodka, no big deal. Then they make... Two types of rum. Okay. They make a white rum, uh-huh. which is like a. I mean, we know what white rum is. So like they a brew Bacardi it. Or yeah, they brew it in like true clear. Caribbean style yeah. fashion with sugar cane and things like that. And then they make that a Boston rum is what they call it, but it's based on the Medford rum that they found in the vault, and it's a particular type of rum that is kind of local to the Boston area. Made with more of, like, a darker molasses. Hmm. Um, and it is an amber-colored rum. Okay. Uh, so, two rums. Then they do two gins. Mm-hmm. Um, one is a drier, more London gin style. Mm-hmm. And then the other is a fruitier, more botanical-based gin. Uh, and... Almost all of the botanicals are grown on their farm. Okay. So. That's cool. Very cool. Then they distill (laughs) two types of Amaro. Um, They have a regular Amaro and then 
one of their newest things is an Amaro Rarbaro. And they, you can make like Aperol spritz like drinks with it. Okay. Uh, But they have like, so that's right there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different liquors. Most distilleries focus on like a type of liquor. Right. But they like do all of them, which is very interesting. Yeah. And they're award-winning, and not all of these liquors are award-winning, but quite a few of their different liquors have won awards in different shows and contests. But then, on top of that, these are where I'm, like, a little bit more mind-blown that they are such a small distillery and producing so much. They have two canned drinks that they produce. Okay. One is a grapefruit spritz. Delicious. So it takes that Amaro, uh-huh. and then they add in some carbonation and some other um, elements to it. It gets canned, and they sell it in their tap room, which they also run. Uh, and so they, and it's like a summer refreshing uh-huh. spritz. And a new, I think, just this past summer, they introduced an Italian iced tea, which again is like a carbonated alcoholic tea used with the Amaro um, and it's just like a hard iced tea Interesting. that they sell in a can. That's a lot of stuff. But wait. Oh. Here's where we get really crazy because I don't think I've ever heard of this and maybe I have and I I've tuned it out because I really don't know that I'm on board with it. But then I read some reviews, and now I must find this immediately. What the fuck is it? They do cocktails by the bottle. Cocktails by the bottle? Like, pre-bottled cocktails. Okay. But, like... Like, like with the alcohol in them already. Yeah, like like a 750-liter bottle of whiskey, but it's, a, it's bottled old-fashioned. And you just pour it straight onto rocks. Interesting. And normally I'd be like, no, that's yeah, not that good. Sound but good. I, I I did some research, I read some reviews, and people say it's a damn good old fashioned, straight from the bottle. Nothing like the they some people say it's a little bit more heavy handed on bitters uh-huh. than like if you got it at a bar. But, like, the ratio of everything is, like, almost spot on. And it's, like, very, very good. And so I'm, like, imagine just being able to pour. I mean, making an old-fashioned is not hard by any means. But sometimes you don't have everything. And And you just want to pour it onto some ice. So they have two of those. They have an old-fashioned and a Negroni. Interesting. In the bottle, you pour straight bottle over ice and sip and the reviews are great on both of them so well now I want to try them right so this tiny craft brewery in Boston is creating eight very good very different and distinct liquors Mm -hmm. two canned like spritzes beverages and two bottled cocktails and they're still growing each and every day, and it's just mind-blowing to me how creative they are and how much they've done with, like, 
And just, like, the history kind of backing yeah. it, their grandfather loving it. So I just wanted to tell the story of... That's so cool. Bully Boy Distillers. Do you picture of their bottles by any chance? Uh, I do. Or I can Google them if you don't. Well, I'm Googling it, but... Because I just... They all look... They're pretty basic bottles. I mean, in, like, a good way... You know, I do feel like I recognize that logo, though. We, again, will post all this on our Instagram pictures of their bottles. Uh, I feel I feel like I've seen that somewhere. Yeah. Don't know where, but I feel like I have. But um, they're doing big things up there, those Willis brothers. <laughs> Amazing. We're going to have to... We're going to have to find the bottled cocktails... And try them. Like You can on, order like, them on, on their website. We should do it like during the podcast one day, like during our intro, and just drink one and see what it's like. And if you are in the Boston area for a visit, definitely stop by. They have a, a tasting room. I did read that tours are stopped right now because of COVID, but hopefully soon. tours will resume yeah. soon. But yeah, here's a picture of like the old fashioned. It's just literally bottled old fashioned. Cute. Ready to go. So that is Bully Boy. Nice. Do you have any sources? Oh. <laughs> um, so I did watch multiple YouTube videos because okay. they had, they did like a whole series when they were starting out. Mm-hmm. So YouTube.com. Search. <laughs> search Bully Boy. Um, as well as their website has a, a very long history of them. Okay. And then there is... There's not a lot of press on them, to be honest. There should be. I know. Starts with this podcast. I know. <laughs> um, but hold on. Let me... I did use one one Boston newspaper. Here we go. Um, the Boston Globe article written June 15th of 2021, checking in on Bully Boy Distillers after a busy 10 years. And that's... That's my sources. Awesome. So, I just said this to Laura, but I'm going to say it again. My I did a bar, not a distillery, and it is also in Boston, Massachusetts, and that was unplanned. That, that's <laughs> our our second theme this week. Yeah. <laughs> it was specifically bars and distiller, distilleries in Boston, Massachusetts. So, the bar that I'm talking about today is called the Green Dragon Tap. Dragon Tavern, and I always get tongue twisted when I was practicing the story, so I'm sorry in advance that I'm gonna get tongue twisted every time. The Green Dragon Tavern. Tavern. Got yes. it. Uh, and while it technically no longer exists, it also kind of does. Interesting. <laughs> so I'm gonna explain. So the original Green Dragon Tavern was on the corner of Union and Hanover Streets in Boston, Massachusetts, and it was demolished in the 1800s. However, a new quote-unquote reborn version of the Green Dragon was built on Marshall Street in 1993, which, while not at the exact same location, is close to the original site. Okay. So this is an engraving of what the original Green Dragon looks like. It's, like, very colonial-looking. Very. Looks like a nice farmhouse. Yep. I'll point out that there's 
A dragon. dragon. Cute. I bet it was green. Your drawing is black and white. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to assume that dragon is green. It was actually copper. But it was but oxidized. You know, yeah. Yep. You know what happens when copper is left out. Just like Lady Liberty. Yep. Turns green. Uh, and this is the new version. Oh, well, that's freaking adorable. It is real cute, but it's not... This look exactly the same. No, that looks like a that looks like a British pub. It looks very cute. Very. I would definitely go. I would go to there. I would go to there. Let's go to there. <laughs> um, but again, while it's while it doesn't look exactly the same, it is trying to carry on the original bar's legacy and history because a lot of really notable things happened there. So an author named Stephen D. Barlene. Uh, who wrote the book The Tavern, A Social History of Drinking and Conviviality, said in his book, no tavern from this era, pre-revolution, is as famous or as important in American history. Well, damn. Uh, In fact, the Green Dragon Tavern would become known by historians as the headquarters of the revolution. Okay. Yes. It's important. Yes. (laughs) So, the date that the Green Dragon Tavern... Why don't you just call it, like, the GDT? Yeah. (laughs) Or just Green Dragon, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the tavern that tongue twists me. Was built... uh, Actually, it seems to be disputed when when it was built. Uh, Some say that it was established in 1654 under the name Baker's Arms, while others say that it was not until 1712. The current Green Dragon's website does go with the 1654 date, which isn't surprising to me. Of course, they would want to go with the older date. Um, But another website I read disputed this, saying that 1654 was four decades before the bar's earliest reference. So, basically, we just, we don't don't know. It doesn't exist. It was built long before any of us. Yes. Oh, and I do want to say um, there are, I, I guess because it doesn't exist anymore, there's a lot of, like, inconsistencies in the story and a lot of things like this where it's like, it was this year or this year, or maybe this person or this person. So you're just going to have to bear with me. <laughs> um, the site of the tavern, the original, was described as being 0.75 acres in size, which made it one of the largest structures in Boston at the time. It was a large three-story colonial building, primarily made of brick, uh, and it had the copper dragon mounted outside. And as we said, that's where it would eventually get its name from because it, copper obviously turns green, like Lady Liberty. Yes. So the people source, which is obviously the most reliable source. Of course. JK. Uh, but it is the only place that I could find some additional background on the property itself. So we're just going to hope it was right because its sources were books, not like links to other websites. So right. I, I couldn't get to those books to confirm but uh, it says that William Stoughton uh, had acquired the property sometime before June of, 177- of 1676. Um, and an interesting side note about him is that he was a colonial magistrate uh, and an administrator in the province of Massachusetts Bay. And if William Stoughton sounds familiar, it is because he was in charge of the Salem Witch Trials. So, oh. Yeah. Uh, and there was a note on Wikipedia that unlike some of the other magistrates during the Salem Witch Trials, this guy never admitted to the possibility 
that his acceptance of spectral evidence was a mistake. He was, like, the only one that didn't. Oh, so we don't like him. So, yeah. Yeah, not, not a great one. He sucks. Yeah. But whatever, that's all we hear about him. His niece, uh, and her name, I think, is Mehetable? 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 Cooper. I've never seen this name in my life. I had to put a pronunciation. I think it's Mehitable. Mehitable sounds good. Have you ever seen that name before? No. Uh, Cooper inherited the property from him. It was then purchased in 1743 from her son, William Cooper. William Cooper, who I guess had inherited it from her. Um, And this time it was purchased by a physician and pamphleteer named William Douglas. Douglas would live in the tavern and call it his mansion house before his death in 1752. And after his death, his sister sold the tavern to the St. Andrew's Lodge of Freemason. Another article I read said that the tavern was opened, uh, or sorry, the tavern was owned and operated by a man named Richard Pullman in 1712. So either Wikipedia has the timeline wrong or missing information, which is also possible. Wikipedia had William Cooper listed as the the person who owned it at that time, so it could be that he did own it, but, like, maybe rented it out to Pullman or, like, rented out the basement, which is where the tavern was and, like, used the top two floors, Um, but it didn't specify. So, oh, and then another source said that the public house or tavern opened in 1714, so it's a third date because we had 1654, 1712, now 1714. It opened at some point. <laughs> the pub opens, beer is served. Yes. Either way, everyone seems to agree that St. Andrew's Lodge bought the property in either 1774 or 1776. Okay. No one knows. There's just so many dates. Okay. So while... The property was under the ownership of the Masons. They used the first floor as their meeting rooms and the basement as the tavern. And that at that time, the Masons were led by a Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, Joseph Warren. Warren, if you don't know who he is, was a doctor, and he played a leading role in patriot organizations in Boston during the early days of the American Revolution. He was ultimately killed in the Battle of Bunker Hill, and I'm sure that the person who followed him as Grand Master uh, is more of a recognizable name. It was John Hancock. Oh. And we know his name. Everyone knows his name. Everyone knows his name with his big-ass signature. Idol to Bill McCoy. Throwback to season one. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot he was Bill McCoy's idol. (laughs) So It's so random. Uh, So. (laughs) Who's your idol? John Hancock. I just love signatures. (laughs) Um, So at this time, the Green Dragon was briefly renamed Freemason's Arms before it began to become referred to as Mason's Hall. Uh, They apparently added the Freemason symbol of a large square and compass uh, to the front of the building. And I'm sure many of us know that a lot of important white men in American history were Freemasons. Yes. I mean, even still, 
you know? It's just a thing. Uh, and if you didn't know that, I'm telling you that that is, that is accurate. White men like to <laughs> congregate. <laughs> um, so it's not surprising that many of them would then start hanging out in the tavern under their meeting hall. Even though the tavern was open to the public, like, obviously, you know, they had their Freemason meetings and then they you know, made their way down to the, to the bar. Uh, and so the tavern began to be used as a meeting spot for several other secret groups. Not that the Freemasons are super secret, but I think your membership is, or it used to be, secretive. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those groups was the Sons of Liberty, uh, who were a very famous group in American Revolutionary history. History.com describes it as a grassroot, grassroot groups of instigators and provocateurs in colonial America who used an extreme form of civil disobedience, threats, and in some cases actual violence to intimidate loyalists and outrage the British government. The goal of the radicals was to push moderate colonial leaders into confrontation with the crown. You might know them for some of their more famous events, including the Stamp Act and the Boston Tea Party. Uh, And even though membership was secret, it is believed that people like Samuel Adams, Dr. Joseph Warren, which mentioned, Paul Reveal, and John Hancock were all members. So you can see that Mason overlap and how, like, they met for their Mason meetings and then they went downstairs and met for their Sons of Liberty meetings. (laughs) They're like, hey, we have these double meetings. Can you just (laughs) put them in one place? Put them in one place. Um, And in addition to the Sons of Liberty, the Boston Committee of Correspondence and the Boston Caucus, which were two other important groups that began prior to the American Revolution, also supposedly met in this tavern. It's just lots of meetings. Lots to be a fly meetings. on the wall in that tavern. I know, right? You probably heard some shit. Um, so while we don't have time for me to go into a full history lesson about these organizations. Yes, we do. Continue <laughs> on. <laughs> Professor Vanessa. No, we don't. <laughs> and the events and ideas that were started in the Green Dragon. Because honestly, like all of like and you could do a whole episode on the Sons of Liberty. You could probably do multiple episodes on this. You could, we could do a season. You could do a season on the Freemasons. You could do a season on these events I'm about to talk about. Like, it, it's impossible for me to cover them all right now, despite Laura wanting me to. Okay. <laughs> Hour one. <laughs> Vanessa has just decided season four is the American Revolution. Oh, my God. I feel like you could do multiple seasons on the on the American. Well, there are many podcasts on it. <laughs> <laughs> I shall show you when we finish recording. Okay. <laughs> um. So while I'm not going to do that, and I'm sure you could find podcasts that do, I do want to point out some really important events in American history that are believed to be tied to the Green Dragon Tavern. Aside from just the general planning of the American Revolution, because a lot of planning happened here. So first, the aforementioned Boston Tea Party that I just talked about. love a good cup of tea. (laughs) Was said to be planned at the Green Dragon. Uh, And very quickly, again, the Boston Tea Party took place on December 16th of 1773. It was a political protest at Griffin's Wharf in Boston. And as written on History.com, American colonists frustrated and angry at Britain for imposing... Taxation without representation, which I'm sure everyone has fucking heard a million times if you went to school in America. Yes. 
Uh, My history teacher heart just grew three inches. <laughs> they dumped 342 chests of tea imported by the British East India Company into the harbor. Uh, the, eva- the event was the first major act of defiance to British rule over the colonists. And now we just have tea parties where we, like, eat petty fours and We, like, imitate drink. The, Brit- the Brits. Yeah. I feel like we now, like, idolize the Brits. I know. <laughs> and back then they were like, we don't want your taxed tea. And now we're like, ooh, let's have a tea party. Afternoon tea. Tea. <laughs> tea, mom. More tea, please. Oh, uh, can't wait till our friend Lee listens to this. <laughs> Our friendly is is British for just, those who don't. Just uh, a spot of tea. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I'm sorry. That happened. It's been a long day. <laughs> uh, another important event that happened happened <laughs> happened in the tavern's history uh, is that it's believed Paul Revere Paul Revere actually left from the Green Dragon on his midnight ride. What? That's pretty awesome. Right? Uh, So this is the famous ride that he took on April 18th of 1775 to Lexington and Concord. Yep. To warn of the approach of British forces. Which, I feel like I read somewhere that he didn't actually do the whole the British are coming thing. Yeah. I, yeah. But I like to imagine it. Just riding from the Green Dragon. The British are coming! Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's so interesting because I feel like in history we, there's like a famous church in downtown Boston and people say he started there with the bells ringing. Yeah. Possible. I mean, who knows? Like, none of us were there. None of us were there. (laughs) But I like the fact that he started at this tavern. Yes. Um, the last event I'm going to mention was in January 1788. Uh, I take it back. I think he rode to the church for them to ring the bell. Oh, you're right. He was he was going. He had them ring the bell. Yeah, yeah. I take it back. So he left from the bar and went to a church, as you do. I mean, sounds like a Sunday to me. <laughs> <laughs> so in January 1788. A meeting was held of the mechanics and artisans of Boston, where they drew up a resolution to support the federal constitution, uh, and this happened at the Green Dragon. And there's a quote from one of the website the websites I read, uh, breedshill.org, that said, "If the Boston Tea Party can be said to be one of the beginning strokes of the American Revolution, then certainly this petition to adopt the federal constitution was one of the closing, both of which came out of the Green Dragon Tavern." So that's kind of cool. That is kind of cool. Um, and it does make, jumping back to Paul Revere, it does kind of make sense that he left from the Green Dragon because it's also where they made plans to eavesdrop on British troops. In fact, one of the websites I used had a quote from Revere uh, that he wrote later in life. It said, about 30 persons, chiefly North End mechanics, had agreed to watch the movements of the British soldiers and the Tories in anticipation of their descent on Concord. These patriots met at the Green Dragon Tavern, so he like specifically named it. We were so careful that our meeting should be kept secret that every time we met, every person swore upon the Bible that they would not discover any of our transactions, but to Messrs. Hancock, Doctors Warren and Church, and one or two more leaders. 
They took turns to watch the soldiers two by two by patrolling the streets all night. Um, I do want to say that another website I briefly skimmed continued this quote, which went on to say that they actually moved their meetings from the Green Dragon because it was like discovered that they were meeting there. So maybe Paul left from there, maybe he didn't since they moved their meetings, um, but that is what what the rumors say. Right. So, I mean, either way, it doesn't make the Green Dragon any less important because a lot of shit still happens there. Can you imagine? And um, we can't. Although, <laughs> maybe I feel like there are probably people right now doing very similar, like, work trying to change things that are happening in America. Mm-hmm. But, like, being the people sitting in a tavern making plans that are going to completely change the course of a country. That's crazy. And, like, I know that there are so many small grassroots movements now. I think, you know, I I ideally think back to, like, the 2008 presidential election and, like, Obama's entire campaign was grassroots and he came from nowhere, but it was, like, all these community leaders who rallied behind him and got him elected president of the United States And it's one of the last times I think, like, so much American history has changed based on, like, small community leaders. So it's kind of interesting to see what the next revolution will be. Like, will it be the Green New Deal? Will it be, like, people like that, Mm -hmm. that we kind of know the name of right now, who are leading it? And then, like, hundreds of years from now. They'll still be talking about them? Yeah. Like, AOC seems like a big name right now, Uh but will people know her name in 150 years? Right. Or not? We won't know. We won't know. Yeah, we will not. (laughs) if you discover this podcast... (laughs) (laughs) Travel back in time and tell us. In 2200. I guess, you know, we'll we'll know if they're talking about... I mean, knock on wood... (laughs) We'll know if they're talking about her, like, 50 years from now, you know? So. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see some of... I mean, we're constantly... They're going to be talking about COVID forever. Like, we talk about... Like, I know about the Spanish flu, you know? Like... Yeah. There's definitely, like, stuff that we're living through that is going to be studied. 9-11. So many things yeah. that we have lived through as current millennials <laughs> will be studied... Yeah. yeah. So many. We, so many. I, let's... Back to the GDT. Back to the green... The, the GDT. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't until 1818 when the tavern was actually renamed the GDT, the Green Dragon Tavern. Um, likely because at this point, the Masons have moved out. They moved to their headquarters to the Exchange Coffee House. Uh, and the building seems to have fallen on some hard times after this. Masons left it and got fucked over. So in 1824, a man named Dr. John Collins Warren visited the tavern, and he said that it was inhabited by poor people and that the rooms were cut up into small apartments. Oh, that's sad. The tavern, a few years later, ended up closing in 1828, uh, and sadly, as I noted, the building was demolished. Again, a year that we don't know. It was either 1832 or 1854, which is a big difference. Yeah. But I found both of those years listed. Um, But whenever it happened, it's just, it's really sad that the building got demolished. Because, like, 
these were huge events in history. Like, can you imagine being able to, like, go visit it? That'd be awesome. It'd just be so cool. So sad. And what makes it even sadder is that the people source says that it was replaced by a warehouse. Oh. So boring. Bad move, Boston. I know. Another source said that it was demolished to widen Union Street. But either way, it's not a good idea. It's not good. I'm very shocked to hear that because have you visited Boston? Yeah. Like, so much history is preserved there. I know. From the Revolution. And, like, that whole time period. But it's so, like, it just seems like the building kind of fell to disarray, so they probably were just, like... And if they needed to widen whatever this yeah. street is. Yeah. It was... But, yeah, that's kind of... It's really sad. I just think it would have been so cool to, like, be able to visit this place. Um, and, like, you know, it, I saw a website that was, like, we don't really know what it looked like on the inside because there's only drawings of the outside, and it's just, like, all that history is just lost. Come on, Paul. So sad. I know. Um, there is a commemorative plaque that is at the location of the original tavern. It was placed on August 19th of 1892, and it reads, on this, and on this spot stood the Green Dragon Tavern, the secret meat place of the Sons of Liberty, and in the words of Webster, the headquarters of the revolution. To mark a site forever as memorable as the place of American freedom, this tablet is placed by the Massachusetts Society of the Sons of Revolution. Uh, and though the original is gone, as I said at the top of the story, there is a new version of the Green Dragon. Uh, it opened in Massachusetts in 1993. It has a picture of the original hanging on its walls. And you can order food like red coat wings or burgers named after John Hancock and Joseph Warren. Really play into it. If John Hancock's burger is not a chicken burger, I don't want it. Why? Because, like, Hancock, like, chicken. <laughs> <laughs> now I kind of want to look it up. Uh, Green Dragon Tavern. I'm going to look up the menu right now. <laughs> and do they serve French fries? Because I want American fries. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm really punchy tonight. Uh, let's see. They have patio and indoor seating. Oh, yay. They have zucchini fries. They have super nachos. I wonder why they're super. Of course, they have New England clam chowder. Chowder. John Hancock is actually a vegetarian burger. What? <laughs> the, Josh, the Joseph Warren is... Uh, Made with bourbon bacon jam, Swiss cheese on a toasted seeded bun. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm i sorry I'm reading menu items. Yeah. <laughs> I was just curious. I appreciate, like, the pun of it, but then I also, like, it kind of takes a little bit of the... It makes it, like, too kitschy. Too kitschy, yeah. Like, I want to go and visit for the historic nature, but then I'm like... Yeah, am I really honoring John Hancock by eating a veggie burger? <laughs> Maybe he would have been into veggie burgers. Something um, about the size of his signature tells me differently. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the bar does try to fully embrace the history of the original tavern. Um, they're still part of many tours. There's many articles that note them as historic, a historic bar in Boston. Um, they're even on a ghost tour. 
But all I could find about that was a line that said it was haunted by several spirits, including potentially Paul Revere. I was going to say, if it's but not Paul Revere... I feel like that's... It's not the original location. I mean, I, I guess it's probably old, you know, like in an old building. Oh, I thought you meant the ghost tour goes to the original no. location. Oh. Then no, it's fake. <laughs> um, and the Massachusetts location actually isn't the only place where you could experience the history of the special tavern. There's a second green dragon? There's, there's another green, green dragon tavern in California. I believe in San Diego or near San Diego. Uh, it's called the Green Dragon Tavern and Museum. They actually refer to it on their website as the GTTNM. They, they took a note from you. <laughs> I like it. Uh, and its aim is to bring some of that information and, like, artifacts of our founding fathers and the American Revolution to the West Coast. Because we get a lot of that on the East Coast and, you know, Pennsylvania and in, in Massachusetts and even in New York. But on the West Coast, they don't really have that history that's true um and so this the green dragon tavern and museum aims to bring that to the west coast that's cute i like that the tavern section of the website says that it is inspired by 18th century taverns once the epicenter of communities gdt and m is an enhanced replica of the original green dragon tavern offering modern day amenities such as filtered water buckshell free food complimentary Wi-Fi, and large-screen LED TVs for your favorite teams, all while embracing and continuing the historic traditions of providing good times and communal experiences. The museum section of the website says that they appreciate that many who visit their museum may not have had the time or resources to travel to the East Coast to experience our country's early architecture, artifacts, and culture where they're more easily accessible. Says their goal is to provide a tangible space that can offer a glimpse into that experience on the West Coast, focused on the contributions of our founders during colonial American history. Uh, it says our museums and educational exhi- exhibits feature authentic original documents from the era and reconnect our guests with the lifetimes and still prevalent innovations and perspectives of those who shaped our great country. So it seems like they're doing good things. It's pretty cool. It's a good idea. Um, and this is the location in California which honestly looks a lot more like the original to me than the oh for the sure. one in Boston. Totally. 100%. It looks just like it. I um, would definitely plan a field trip there if I lived in California. Yeah. Check it. If anyone is listening in California near, I, again, I think it was the San Diego area, check it out and let us know. Um, but that's it. That's, that's my story of the Green Dragon Tavern, the GDT. And its modern iterations. So my sources were the People Source Wikipedia, uh, the Green Dragon Tavern and Museum website, uh, an article called "Oldest Bars in Boston" by Rebecca Beatrice Brooks from HistoryOfMassachusetts.org, uh, and also BreedsHill.org, uh, which their information about the tavern was good, but it was all on a page about buying, like, a paper model that you could build of the Green Dragon. So if you're interested, check check them out. Googling now. <laughs> and that's it. Lovely. So much history. So much history. You really, like, pulled a Laura there. I did. Well, 
we just told you about a bar and distillery, and now we're going to tell you about another bar for our bar of the week. Yes. <laughs> uh, this is one we've actually visited and been to. Oh, this is one that you visited and been to? Correction. Does- this is... <laughs> This is one Laura has. Despite it being in my hometown, like where I grew up. Where her parents still currently reside. Laura was like, oh, you've been here, right? I was like, definitely not. Anyways, uh, so this is a, a bar that my coworkers and I really like to sometimes go to when we want to have a couple drinks after work. Um, it's called... I was just going to say, for anyone who hasn't listened to episodes in the past, Laura's school is the school that I went to. Like, that's where she works. Yeah. So it's in, in this neighborhood that I grew up in. Yes. Continue. Yes. <laughs> so uh, the bar is called the Tin Marin. It's located in the Bronx in uh, New York. And I really like it. It's like a Spanish tapas restaurant. And so for after work, it's kind of perfect because we're usually there like 3, 30, 4 o'clock. So mm. it's not lunchtime, not dinner time, but snack time. Yeah. And so like a tapas is perfect to yeah, like, like have a couple bites. Ordering a full meal. like Right. And their happy hour specials are so on point. They make very good margaritas. Bargaritas? Margaritas. Oh, I was like, <laughs> is that their specialty? Bargaritas? <laughs> Uh, and they also do pretty good sangria as well. Okay. Um, but their margaritas are always on point. They have like eight different flavors, mm-hmm. uh, which I love. I love a basic margarita, but I also like. I a, love a flavored margarita. A coconut margarita, a passion fruit margarita, mango. Yeah, I mean avocado. <laughs> avocado margaritas are so good. So they they're just a really nice chill restaurant. Right now, during COVID, they've got, like, a great outdoor setup if you still want to sit outside. It's, it's very cute. I've passed it many times. I have just never gone inside. <laughs> and I think you and your parents would love it. I know. We actually thought of ordering from there once, but they didn't do delivery. And my my parents aren't going to go sit there. I'm going to need to, like, meet up with you one day to go sit. That's... <laughs> okay. I'm going to have to meet up with you in the neighborhood that neither of us live in. <laughs> To go have to, dinner. To go have dinner where my parents live. Okay. Um, we're going to just table that for future <laughs> therapy. <laughs> but uh, if you find yourself in the northern section of the Bronx and you want to try a good restaurant, I suggest the Tin Marin. Great drinks, good food. It's just good, cozy Vibes, reasonable yeah. prices. What's the the picture that you're going to use? What what drink was it? It is a margarita. Um, I want to say that day was passion fruit. That day was passion fruit. <laughs> just, it, de- it just depends on the week I'm having. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure it is a passion fruit margarita. And it was tasty. Yeah. And it's going to be posted on our socials. Yes, so if you're not following us yet, make sure you check us out on Instagram and Twitter. We are at a tap on the wrist. And then feel free to email us with bar suggestions, preferably in New York, so that we can get to them. But uh, we need some new bars to go to so we can talk about them. Yeah. And you can email us at tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. And until our next therapy session. <laughs> <laughs>
Cheers. Cheers.